Good afternoon. It's great to be with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and invite you to work and speak to us. We invite you, Lord, to show us your way. Show us your path that we might walk in it. Help us to see our blind spots. Lord, help us to see how we are not trusting in you and trusting instead in dust and ashes. Oh, Lord, would you come and be with us now? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been excited to think about the ideas of the Lord working in the city of Boston, and that continues to give me excitement where we could see a great work of spiritual revival. Is that something you would hope for? Well, I'm not convinced. (laughs) There's many things in the way. There's many things in the way, and I think one of the things that needs to happen is that there, in order for us to even begin to dream of this happening, is there needs to be a mighty movement among God's people for prayer, in which we're really digging in, and we're praying for and in and through this city. And until we're really beginning to pray, nothing's going to happen. I think another potential thing that could happen is the Lord could show up in an unexpected and sovereign way in which he pours out signs and wonders and healing. There, we can't control. We can ask him to do such things. And if the world would see such power, then what could stand in that way? But perhaps uh, something that comes really close to the heart is something that we have direct control over. And it has to do with wealth and power. It seems to me that when God especially works in and through his people, and when revival actually begins to break out, his people become incredibly generous. They pour out in love their time and their treasures. And they help those who have need. And when the church does that, the world, perhaps even more than signs and wonders, stands in awe. Stands in awe of a loving God working through a loving people. Well, that's something that is awesome to see. But I think we have perhaps a long way to go. So why am I talking about money? wealth and why are we reading this pretty depressing psalm because wealth and power stand in the way in our own hearts of God working so I'd like to bring your attention to this amazing psalm psalm 49 and you can keep your bible open if if you want to look at it in the pews in front of you psalms is right in the middle of of the of the bible in psalm 49 I'll continue to to bring you back to it It seems to me that if we're going to really see God work, we've got to deal with ourselves in our idolatry around power and around money. We've got to deal with the issues of wealth. And it's easy for the church to talk about sex. Well, maybe it's not easy to talk about. That's a big big issue. But even a greater stronghold that lies within the church is dealing with wealth. So may God give us strength as we address it. 
Psalm 49, it's, an, it's actually, a, I've had the opportunity to reflect on it all week, and it's an amazing psalm that just penetrates with truth and cuts to the heart. It gets down right to the very base of the, of the issue of life. That's why I especially have enjoyed to meditate it on this week. And, and I think if there were, there were three things that it really teaches us, it's, it's that wealth cheats us through death. And that wealth cheats us through deception. But there's another way. There's the way of grace. Wealth cheats us through death. That is, you can hear it all throughout this psalm. It doesn't matter how much of abundance you gather. In the end, it will all turn into dust and ashes and be taken away from you. Wealth cheats us through deception. Because there's actually, as we'll look at the psalm in a few minutes, there's more going on with the with the amassing of wealth to yourself, or at least the pursuit of it, than meets the eye. It's not just about comfort. There's something more religious going on for all those who are pursuing wealth and power. But there is another way. It's the way of grace. If you look at verse 6, a key insight, I think, around this passage is that the psalmist talks about those who trust in their wealth, that word wealth, those who trust in their wealth in verse 6. That word, the Hebrew word, is a word that means power. So rather than thinking about merely or just narrowly about finances, what the psalmist really has in mind is human power. It's human strength. It's the exercise of trusting in your own power and strength. So it's not just about everything that you're collecting. It's about trusting in brilliance and intelligence. It's about trusting in prestige or gathering your ability to influence others. It's about trusting in the title or the office that you've been given. It can be trusting in your own beauty or your appearance or your wardrobe. And then, of course, it is indeed also talking about trusting in material wealth. So it's not just addressing the rich, it's addressing all of us because there is an inclination within the human heart to go after power and to trust in yourself, that is, to trust in your own power. And the scriptures call us not to do so. For one reason, because power and wealth cheats you through death. Verse 13, it says that those who have a foolish confidence, or the NIV, NIV translates it as trust in self, but the ESV translates it as foolish confidence. It's the same very word. It's also used in, in Job about those who trust in power and wealth as if it is trusting in a spider's web. You trust in a spider's web to lean on it and to hold you up? That's what trusting in your own strength, trusting in your own wealth does. Because we're finite. Because we're all going to die. You know, we as a church are right outside a graveyard. And if that graveyard should be at least one reminder to us all, is that this life is finite. And that we're all going to die. And that's a message that is depressing, but it's, yet, it's actually really clarifying. It clarifies everything about this life, that it's short, and you better have your priorities straight. 
You could become a, a brilliant professor. But in the end, it says in verse 10, even the wise die. You could have a, a beautiful house and accumulate all kinds of things, but as it says in verse 11, in the end, the grave will be your home forever. You could, have, you could be beautiful or handsome, and everyone really remark about your looks, and that could have a real power over people. But in the end, as it says in verse 14, your form shall be consumed by Sheol. You could gain great influence or popularity, whether it's through Hollywood or as a musician or by, through YouTube. But in verse 17, it says, the glory, their glory will not go down. Their, their glory will not go down after him. Or you can gather many, many things, amass incredible wealth and abundance. But the scriptures make clear that even if you were to do so, not even do you have a guarantee that tomorrow you'll have those things. Like a bird, it could fly away in an instant. That happens, and it can. So to trust in it is foolish. For we brought nothing into the world, the Apostle Paul says, and we can take nothing out of it. We are born, as many have commented, as newborns, clutching our fists, but when we die, our hands are empty. That is the reality. My days are like an evening shadow, the psalmist says in 102. I wither away like grass. It's a brutal message, but we've got to listen. You've got to hear this message because we're all tempted to pursue power and wealth of various kinds. And if that is your, what's going on in your own life, and I'm certain everyone here has those sorts of temptations and those pulls, listen to the scripture. Wake up and realize that it's all passing away. So you need to have your priorities straight. Wealth, power, cheats you through death. Well, there's a second way that wealth cheats us. It's through deception. It's through deception. This is, the scripture is really, the scripture is very subtle in how it lays this out. There, there are at least five kinds of deception that I were able to see that the psalmist really wants to bring to our attention, in which it, you think that chasing after power of whatever kind is really just a human ambition, but what the scripture and what the psalmist is trying to get across is that this ambition is actually a religious project. Trusting in yourself and trusting in human power is a religious act, and you need to wake up and see that that's in case, that is in fact what's happening. Let me show you how this is. There's deception about the meaning of one's abundance in one's home. Verse 6, we, the, the rich gather the abundance of riches. In verse 12, they, they, there's this pomp in which they which is a not-so-subtle display of higher status or being better than thou. And then in verse 16, it's interesting, it says, it talks about the glory of their house increases. You see the glory of their house, and the psalmist is saying, don't be afraid when you see this happening, but here we see this glory of the house increasing. And it's interesting that that word house is the same word for temple that we see in the, New Test in the Old Testament. In other words, what the, the psalmist is subtly implying, it's not just about having your own home. 
but how that home, whether it's something you own or something you rent, can become something in which is like a temple. And who is the God in the temple? Well, it can subtly take on that, that meaning within your own heart. Only you know, if you look at yourself, whether your home is taking on the sense it's more than just a home, it's actually becoming like a temple. Maybe you live in a very humble place. It's not a Newport mansion or Downton Abbey. But even there, if you scrutinize your motives, if you look at your heart, the question is, are you glorying in it as a temple? And there's that risk in which you have to look at yourself because this is one of the subtle ways in which we think we're just having a nice place and we're decorating it and making it beautiful, but there can be more going on than meets the eye. Another deception is around relationships. Uh, I would call it relationships of dependence. You can see this in verse 18. It says, the rich or the wealthy, they get praise when they do well for themselves. And so you can see within the, the psychology of getting wealthy and rich is that there are those who go after the rich. And if you've ever been around a wealthy person in one way or another, it's probably the case that you've been aware of their wealth. You maybe have thought to yourself of how that wealth could benefit you. And it probably ends up treat, affecting how you treat that person through favoritism. Wealth brings many new friends, it says in Proverbs 19.4, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. I remember one very wealthy Christian woman who was talking to me about how she felt like she was a walking checkbook. Because everywhere she looked, everyone was trying to get their peace from her. And that can sound really annoying, but it can also be intoxicating. Intoxicating because people need you. People want you. People are centering themselves around you. And believe me, that can become deeply idolatrous. You might not like it, but you want it. But the flip side is also the case. Not only are those who are sycophants and those who are ladder climbers in which they're trying to use the rich to make their own way, there are also the poor. Verse 5, it talks about the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me. It's important to understand that Psalm 49 is not addressing the rich. It's actually addressing the poor and the powerless. And the question of verse 5 is, should you be afraid of the rich when their wealth increases? And the answer throughout the psalm is no. Do not be afraid because wealth is going to leave them in the end through death. But also because there are these deceptions in which they are building up their own religious life and replacing it with God. And the rich can exploit the poor. The rich and wealthy can take advantage of the defenseless. Rich can put their foot on the neck of the poor. And when you have that power to do that, that too can become amazingly intoxicating. The rich can use their power to influence politics, the legal system, economic policy, healthcare, the criminal justice system, and on and on the list goes. And meanwhile, those who have no power are at greatest risk They're around health insurance, being subject to have to go to poor schools, of, uh, of having to live on an unlivable minimum wage, of 
having to pay exorbitant grocery costs when you live in an urban area. I can go to, you can get, I live in Mission Hill, and the grocery prices are high, and you can go out and get the same groceries out in uh, the suburbs and pay 30 or 40% less. How can that be? And yet this economic system in which we live, the wealthy do, and, or at least can, tend to take advantage of those who have less. And you can see how having dependence, whether it's people who want your money or people that you can step on, can be incredibly intoxicating. It can make you feel like you are Lord. You're acting as if you're Lord. And this is one of the great risks of being wealthy and having power. But not only so, there can be deception in believing what money can buy. Now that's found in, in verse 7 and verse 8. It says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Truly, but not everyone actually lives that way, not at all. In fact, I remember a time when I was working and I really began to believe that, that money made the world go round. And that if I wanted to get my way and have my way, which not, not necessarily an evil way, I needed to get money behind me. And this is especially how it works in the university. But that's not true. But it's an intoxicating kind of idea. It's foolish to think that you can purchase your own life from death. Scriptures say that's not possible. You cannot ransom your own life or another. It's interesting, I was he hearing about, I don't know if this is true, but I did hear a report, which probably is not true, but who knows, about Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is an entrepreneur who uh, is a major owner of PayPal, began PayPal. Uh, According to the internet, he's worth $2.3 billion. And in 2016, it was reported that he was paying $120,000 a year in order to receive blood transfusions from an 18-year-old with matching blood because based on some kind of science that supposedly indicated that younger blood would slow aging. And in fact, anti-aging services in the United States are is estimated at 300 billion, uh, 300, 300 billion business per year. I mean, that kind of sounds like Dracula to me, you know. To, <laughs> but I would say there's actually something more going on. Maybe it is kind of Dracula. If there's a religious impulse of wanting to try to avert or get away from our death. And the scriptures actually indicate there is a way. But it is not this way. It's a fool's errand to think that money, that through money you can escape death or that you could somehow gain eternal life. Well, that's another deception. Here's another one. There's deception around beliefs. It says in verse 18, while he lives, he, at least this is how the English Standard Version, I think this is the better way to translate the Hebrew, while he lives, he counts himself blessed. Oh, do you hear that? You gather power, you gather wealth around yourself. And what theology do you end up creating? Oh, I am blessed. I am blessed by God. Look at all that I have. I must be blessed. And you, this is a, kind of a simple, it's sometimes called retribution theology in which 
Those who have much are considered to be blessed by God, and those who have little are considered to be cursed by God. And those who have much have much because they've somehow earned it, and those who have little have somehow also earned what they have. And it's a theology, it's a false theology that the Bible, this psalm and all of the Bible says no to. That is not how it works. The poor can be righteous, and the rich can be deeply unrighteous. So you must beware. Don't start creating a theology that justifies your wealth or your pursuit of power. It's deceptive thinking that God is blessing you through that in that way. It's not true. The scripture resists it completely. Well, there's a fifth deception, which is about trust. And trust, of course, is just another word for faith. Where does that trust land? Well, we read it in verse 6. Trust in human power. Trust in one's wealth. When you gather all these things together, you begin to lean on it, to trust it, to believe in it, which is to believe in yourself. Israel, before they went into the promised land, and God had promised that in following him, they would receive much blessing. They were given a warning. This is in Deuteronomy 8. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. He says, beware, don't, don't think that. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power even to get wealth. And so as you accumulate things, as power might fall within your lap, there is this amazing temptation to begin to think, well, I've done this. I have gained this. This position, this home, my bank account, my title and role, my appearance, I've done it all. That's faith. And it's a false kind of faith. Don't believe it. It's deceptive. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because that's where it all ends up going. It goes into a boast. You'll end up, if you really begin, you want to, am I trusting in myself? Am I trusting in my own strength? Well, there's a test. The test is boasting. Verse 6, the rich boast about, not in God, but in themselves. Boasting is bragging. And of course, whenever you hear someone brag, it's deeply annoying. Why is it annoying to hear someone brag? Well, either you think that God is being, God's fame is being stolen, or perhaps more often, it irritates because you're not being boasted of. Your, your name is not being lifted up. That's why it irritates. But you see, whatever you trust in, that's what you boast in. In fact, this word for boasting is to pray. It means to praise. I've been listening to you. How much are you praising the Lord? If your trust is in the Lord, you will praise in him. You will boast about him, and you will be enthusiastic depending on where your real faith is, where your real trust is. But if you start boasting in yourself, it's a, it's a clear demonstration that you're trusting in yourself. But I know you a little bit, you're far too subtle to do that. And that's why there's silent boasting. 
boasting in which this takes place in your own heart, in your own mind. I'll give you a personal example, something that's stood by me for the last several years. Tracy and I worked on an academic book in which we worked very hard on for a long time, and it was a very difficult project. And that project finally came to an end. It was a 15-year dream to, to complete this project. And I remember one morning, sitting in the shower, as I had just gotten up, and this thought went through my mind, at least I wrote the book. I'm serious. I'm being raw, it's true, and I'm sure that these sorts of things go through in your mind. That's why I'm going to admit it, because I know what's going on there in your heart, too. All along the way, the book was so hard to write. And I must say, I prayed, and Tracy prayed, we prayed and prayed and prayed. We begged God for the ideas and the way of putting this whole project together, because it was incredibly difficult. It was very humbling, and all throughout the way, I was... I was just asking God for insight at each chapter as we, were, as we were writing it. And I promised that I would always give him honor and not take any, any honor for myself if, we, if he would help us through this project. And then the day came, the thought penetrated my mind, and I savored it for a second, and then I, I opened my eyes and I said, no, no, that's, that's a lie. God did this. He helped us. I boasted that silent boast you never would have known unless I confessed it. And I bet there's silent boasts going on in your own mind and heart. That's the indication of where you're trusting in and who you're trusting in. So pay attention to where your boasts are. Pay attention to where your mind is. And if that's where it is, it's a deception. It's a false faith. And it will lead to your own demise and unhappiness. Well, there is another way. Not the way of wealth and power that leads to death and leads to these deceptions, but it's the way of grace. Verse 15, it says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And then in answer to the question that was asked, should I be afraid when all those around me are growing in wealth, the answer is very clear in verses 16 and 17. Be not afraid. When a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. That is the truth, the two truths. One is that that glory will pass away, but the other truth is is that God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. See, that's where the trust is. The trust of the psalmist is in, the, is in God, that he will purchase his own life out of death and that he will see the morning. That's the hope of the psalmist. And it's the hope of the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, there is a ransom. There is a ransom that can purchase your life. There is a ransom that can purchase your life even out of the grips of death. And it's through Jesus Christ, through his lordship and through his power and through his love in which he sacrificed himself for us all. And so we can follow this false 
and dying system of power, the pursuit of power and, and wealth. But it will lead nowhere but to our own graves. But to trust in Christ will lead not to material riches. There's no promise of that. Not even in Psalm 49 is the poor man or woman promised power or wealth. But to not be afraid even in the midst of that because in the God who loves you will ransom you and will raise you up. So trust in him. Well, how do we do this? Well, let me lay out three practical ways to conclude. How do we move or transition? How do you move or transition from entrusting yourselves from the pursuits of power and wealth of this human system, which is broken, to this other way, the way of grace? Well, first, I would encourage you to completely commit yourself over to what is truly important. Give your heart over to the one thing that is God in Jesus Christ, who alone is truly important. And you've got to examine yourself. Examine what you're pursuing. And ask yourself, what, am I, what is truly real? And what should I give myself over completely to? Don't chase after dust and ashes. And I think I'd be remiss not to mention an example or two even in our own midst. One is Pastor Phil. Pastor Phil, who's been our interim senior minister. You don't know most of his story. He hasn't let you in. I've had the opportunity to hear his story and be so moved, so moved that he is a man of faith. Pastoring a church of 3,000, which he, by God's grace, grew under his ministry over a period of 20 years. You know, if you do that, you've got a big ego. You, well, you might have a big ego. And a lot of people are looking at you. He did that and then heard the voice of God and he walked away. He walked away to a better job, making more money. No, he walked away to nothing. Accepting nothing, waiting on God. He talked a little bit about it this morning in his sermon. It's, it's worth listening to. That's faith. Because he wanted to pursue God even more than Pursuing ministry in the church, that's a blessing, and that is good. Or another pastor here, who we just installed, he and his wife, well, I, I won't tell the whole story here either, I'll leave it for him to tell you, but he walked away from a lot in order to enter into the ministry and to help pastor and lead a ministry to the health sciences. He gave up a lot. Also faith, one leaving the church, one coming into the church. So you're not supposed to quit your jobs unless the Lord's calling you to. But what you are to do is to completely center your mind and your heart and your vision on what is true and what is real and stop pursuing what is dust and ashes. Secondly, in response to this passage, be outrageously generous. If the Lord has somehow blessed you with something, then you are culpable and responsible to use not 10%, forget 10%, 100% all for him and to pour down at his feet because it's all his anyway. He gave it to you and he invites you to use it all for his name and for his work. 
So be outrageously generous. Well, how much? How much should I give? I don't know. I, we go through all kinds of rationales. I, I heard one person, I think this is right, there's the gulp factor. How much should you give? It should make you gulp. That's how much. And maybe even a little bit more. Be personal again. Just last year, the Lord spoke to my wife and said, tell Michael. <laughs> He needs to be more generous. Now, wives, you can manipulate your husbands if you try to make this sort of thing up, but my wife wouldn't do that. And so Tracy and I had to re-examine what we were doing with our finances, and we had to make some gulps so that we went and significantly increased what we were giving. And that was hard, but the Lord has been good. So what about you? Are you gulping as you give? Outrageously give. And it will be the Lord, well, well, what does he say? Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. The Lord's not going to coerce you. Don't do it reluctantly or under compulsion. So we're not telling you any, anything on how you should give. And actually, none of the pastors even know what you give. We don't want to know. God knows, and God loves a cheerful giver, it says in 2 Corinthians 9. Be an outrageously generous person or family with your time, with your talents, and with your treasure. And then finally, let me say, be an outrageously generous church. You know, I think if there were, we were to evaluate our church and everyone in it, there's a lot of distraction. People are pursuing lots of good things. And there's not enough time in the day to pursue it all. But as a church, we've got to make good decisions. We've got to keep our eyes on the ball and pursue what is really real and what will really make a difference. And so we're called to be outrageously generous as a church. I heard a story this week about a man who has, over the last 15 years, has been living in two cities, one in a, a Midwestern city and also down in Orlando, Florida. And he, uh, he's a physician. He travels uh, back and forth between these two cities. His family lives, uh, travels back and forth with him. And uh, he was telling me how he has had the opportunity to watch two churches in, in two cities drastically handle their generosity, generosity differently. The church, he said, in this Midwestern, northern Midwestern city was inept in his mind because there was vast poverty all around them and the church was just about building itself up, fulfilling its own budgets, counting its own people, and doing that sort of thing without unity and without eyes to those who weren't here. And then he said there was the church in Orlando, which he said was amazing. It wasn't always that way. He told me that it was about, uh, I don't know, six or seven years ago, there was the whole housing bubble crash in 2008, 2009. You know, there was all the subprime mortgages. And what happened in places like Phoenix and also in, throughout Florida, there had been a lot of... Um, a lot of bad mortgages given, a lot of people who took a, more risk than they should have. And at this time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were losing their homes. 
and they were being literally foreclosed on and put out on the streets with nothing. They had lost everything. And a guest pastor came to this large church in Orlando and said, without planning this, he said, I think you have entered a very particular time, a Kairos moment, he called it. That I believe the Lord is telling me to tell you that you either need to step up and act or you will diminish and disappear. That weekend, it's a big church. It was a big church. The church raised just over $5 million in order to help people who had been foreclosed on. And then over the course of the next year, that church raised $50 million. They went around buying apartment buildings and bringing in all the plumbers and carpenters and electricians who were working for free and renovating these, these properties. And then they were inviting the people who had been foreclosed on to live there. Today, that church has multiplied in great expansion, continuing to have a heart for those who are poor and powerless, whereas the church in that other city is weak and inept, all because of an outrageous giving. Now, I'm not bringing any kind, I'm not asking you to give anything. I have no you know, program, there's no thermostat with the thing where we're trying to raise money. I'm not doing any of that. What I'm trying to put before you, my brothers and sisters, is that we as a congregation, with one heart, must pour forth everything unto the Lord. It's all His. You've got to stop holding on to what is going to be taken away anyway and use it for the right purposes with generosity overflowing in the Lord. The Lord will see and the Lord will bless. And if we want revival, I'm convinced that it's going to start with prayer. I don't know if we're going to see signs and wonders. I'm not sure we even need to see them. But unless we give with abundance and with generosity and with a loving heart to those many around us who need it, we'll see no movement of the Holy Spirit. Listen to the word. Father God, we thank you for your truth. We pray that it would penetrate our hearts and that our boast, our boast would be only in you. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. O Lord Jesus, may we be such a people worthy of your commending through our love. In Christ's name, amen.